it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hope everyone had a uh, happy Father's Day weekend to whom it applies. And of course, we're back in action today around the country, around the world. Uh, so it'll be great. Uh, Rob Schneider, the outstanding comedian actor, will be here talking about a brand new special, Woke Up in America on Fox Nation. You'll hear some clips and hear from Rob. It's always fantastic to have him in studio. And standing by is uh, the chairman of the Select Committee on the Strategic Competition between the United States and China, uh, Mike Gallagher. But before we get to Mike, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. It is worth mentioning that we are not at Union Square or the Westfield Mall this morning because we have been advised it is simply too dangerous to be there at this hour. Michael. I'm not saying a lot there, Matt. Don't state the obvious. San Francisco Mayor London Breed sounded off on GMA for stating what we all know is crime has overrun the city. We break down the crime crisis in San Fran. And also, Rob Schneider used to live there. He'll help me out. Number two. A poll from Quinnipiac on a, on a possible Biden-Trump match matchup puts Biden at 48 percent, Trump at 44 percent. This is a poll, again, uh, taken largely after the indictment. That's within the margin of error. That is a statistical tie. 2024 is still all about Trump for now. His double-figure lead not affected by the indictment for now. The game plan for the rest of the field is they fan out and speak out. Plus, Biden hit the campaign trail this weekend. And why so few are excited about the idea of four more years of Joe. Number one. China's sending a message. Hey, we're in charge now. You're finished to the, to the West and to the United States. And, and I think it's indicative of what they hope to achieve. Uh, I agree. H.R. McMaster again. Uh, weakness. Secretary of State Blinken meets with the counterpart of the uh, of China and President Xi in China, despite being scolded days before he arrived. The perception is we beg for the meeting. This is the Biden foreign policy. And I wish it was different. I would say if it was different. I like some of the stuff they're doing, but I don't like how they're acting. And what they're not doing, they're calling them out for poisoning the world, trying to get to the bottom of the pandemic, and also trying to find out what is actually going on uh, with their belligerent behavior around the globe. Uh, with me right now is Mike Gallagher. Congressman, welcome. It's great to be with you, Brian. So 45 minutes before he left, Anthony Blinken found out that President Xi will see him. It seems Bob Gates was welcomed, an old friend here, great to see you, but not the Secretary of State to the last minute. How do you interpret that? Had interpreted that? Well, I interpret it in the context of what's been happening for months now, which is that the Biden administration has been chasing Chinese Communist Party officials around the world, seeking photo ops and seeking to sit down. And time and again, the CCP tells us with their actions that they're really not interested in constructive dialogue. Remember when the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, tried to meet with a sanctioned defense minister in Singapore at the Shangri-La Dialogues, they refused the request and not only refused it, then sent a warship to buzz our destroyer. So our ardent pursuit of engagement, diplomatic and economic with the CCP, serves only to embolden them. And that's my real concern. It's that what we're seeing here is a revival of 
this approach of engagement in a hope that it will somehow moderate the CCP behavior. And that's been proven not to work. It also leads us time and again to shelve critical defensive actions such as restrictions on outbound investment, sanctioning CCP officials, among other things, in order to even sit down to the negotiating table. The CCP exploits our naivety and our desperate pursuit of diplomacy in order to advance their authoritarian agenda. No, but no question. And I understand you want to deconflict. They say that there is no communication open should something happen to the South China Sea or anywhere else in the sky to say, hey, guys, don't overreact. But it seemed like General Milley had no problem getting a hold of his counterpart when Donald Trump on January 6th. That's for another conversation. But they did agree on more fights and more exchanges of students between the countries. I'm not thrilled with that. Yeah, what we really need to be doing is making sure that our university system isn't being exploited, uh, that we have adequate guardrails in place so that PLA-affiliated researchers aren't stealing critical intellectual property, aren't spying on the United States. Another thing that's happening in terms of uh, on American campuses is we have students that are being surveilled, harassed, and in some cases physically assaulted by entities linked to a nonprofit, which is then linked to the CCP. That needs to stop. It's really similar to what happened in Manhattan, which is um, through a nonprofit, the CCP set up an illegal police station on American soil. So we need to be getting more aggressive in defending our sovereignty. To your point about the South China Sea, listen, I'm all for crisis communication, but the CCP has refused to pick up the phone for the last six years. And for months, she has blown off Biden's request for calls, though Biden brags about their friendship. But let me be clear, Brian, the problem isn't talking per se. It's talking in the belief that through diplomatic dialogue yep. and economic engagement, we can somehow reset the relationship and persuade Xi to act responsibly. And that's really what Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's been suggesting. She's repeatedly said we can have a healthy economic relationship with China a foster a growing China that plays by the international rules. It's as if we've hopped into the DeLorean and we're going back to the 90s with calls to deepen trade and dependency on China. It's not going to work for the same reasons it hasn't worked for the last 20 years. I mean, they have a national newspaper, the Global Times, and it's really what the government thinks. And uh, through them, they've just been blistering us. For example, before Blinken lands on Friday, this is what the spokesperson says. I would like to emphasize once again that the U.S. should not fantasize about dealing with China based on a position of power. Really? What kind of so welcome with an outstretched hand? Then they then they send a low ranking this this guy to meet our Secretary of State. He's the Director General at China's Foreign Ministry. There's no red carpet, and it's our ambassador. All this stuff matters. You remember Obama, before he left, his last visit to Beijing, he was not allowed to leave from Air Force One. They got no stairs. They didn't get any stairs. He had to leave from the cargo exit, and then the press was locked in a small, unair-conditioned room. This is all messages sent to us, and they've never been forced to pay for this type of disrespect. The, the Obama incident is a perfect one to bring up. I believe it's happened in, in 2015 or, or 2016. Not only did they do that insult on the tarmac when Obama went there for the G20 summit in Hangzhou, they simultaneously sent merchant vessels to contest maritime claims in the Scarborough Shoal relative to the Philippines. And this is a perfect example of how Beijing operates. You know, And the contrast to us, we refrain from taking action for fear it will spoil the atmosphere of talks, but Beijing has the opposite approach. They believe in what you and Lai used to call talking while fighting. 
So Beijing is betting that the U.S. will make concessions just to get to the table to talk, and they bet correctly. I mean, look at this recent track record. They flew a spy balloon over the American heartland, and the administration's instinct was to downplay its significance at every opportunity in an effort to salvage Secretary Blinken's trip to Beijing. And to this day, we still haven't seen the output of the resulting investigation. And likewise, the administration tried to discredit reports of a CCP spy base in Cuba only be, to be forced to sheepishly, sheepishly admit that, yes, um, something was happening there. So a lot of action that isn't being taken as a result of uh, this attempt to revive zombie engagement. And that's what you wrote that your editorial about. So here's the thing. They were supposed to give it a result of the investigation. We don't have the results of the investigation. We do get the results thanks to thanks to Matt Taibbi and uh, Michael Schellenberger. The fact that through the first three victims of covid, not death, but infection with the three scientists in the Wuhan lab that was found out, not from the administration. who doesn't seem curious about it, but that was found out. So they basically cost the world $60 trillion and millions of lives, and they have arrogance towards us. We catch a spy balloon flying over our military installations, and they're mad at us for shooting it down. They raid our base in Alaska, and they they harass our ships and our air uh, fighter jets, and they're mad at us, and then we beg for a meeting, and we get this type of disrespect where they, they, were, they characterize the talks as candid and promise to have more talks. Uh, basically in Washington. I'm not against talking, but I want you to hear what Rand Paul said. Cut six. I think despite our differences and despite the ratcheting up of rhetoric, I think diplomacy is important. And so all throughout the Cold War, we tried to have diplomacy with Russia. We should continue to have diplomacy with China. I think we should have ongoing arms control talks. Even despite all of the things and all the complaints, look, I've had a lot of complaints about the leak from the lab. But there's a lot of discussions and ongoing diplomacy that needs to occur. I mean, so this, actually, this, he just doesn't care what it takes to get that meeting. Reminded of the old saying, diplomacy without armaments is like music without instruments. It, it, it doesn't work. You need a credible military deterrent to back up your diplomatic posture. And the fact is we have not. Our Navy continues to grow smaller as theirs continues to grow bigger and more powerful. Uh, we have not yet learned some of the lessons of Ukraine in terms of surging long-range precision fires to the Pacific. What would enhance our diplomacy is if we had a deterrence by denial posture in place so that Xi Jinping knew that we were operating and talking from a position of strength. And paradoxically, the more we want to talk and the more unmoored our talks become from a robust military deterrent, the worse the Chinese Communist Party will behave. There's an obvious and troubling pattern here. And trust me, I want to hear the administration side of the story. I want I want them to talk about it with me. But they just while they are tripping over themselves to go to Beijing, none want to come before our select committee on China. We've offered them a full four months of opportunities to come. And so if they have a different view of the world, they should be able to defend it in public. We've tried five different ways of reaching out. We're eager to have that discussion. We haven't had it yet. So again, hard power, deterrence needs to be the core of our strategy if you want diplomacy to succeed. And, and by the way, they accused us of sabotaging the relationship with European powers, and they thought it was very bad that we came out publicly and said China plans on giving lethal aid uh, to Russia. And they also said they look at Taiwan as their national sovereignty, and we should just back out and back off. Not going to happen. 
Uh, the other thing that, to keep in mind is Michael Pillsbury, who I think you respect about his knowledge. He said this about China in terms of the drone technology. Listen to this. Now, I'll give you another example of something really quite shocking. The House Republicans got it together. They put a ban in the Pentagon's authorization last year. No purchasing Chinese drones for the U.S. Army or anybody else. A majority of drones the U.S. Army has purchased all come from China, one particular company called DJI. So the ban was in the Senate, it was in the House. It goes to a kind of secret conference to regulate the differences. Guess what? The sentence about drone purchases was taken out mysteriously and secretly. So the drone purchases can continue. Who does stuff like that? Well, that was my bill, actually, and I appreciate um, Pillsbury highlighting it in his book. Uh, is is fantastic, and he recently released a, a set of policy recommendations for winning the new Cold War. That Which are really great. Informed our, they're great. They've informed our committee's work, and we're, we're trying to turn them into reality. But you're right. This, uh, this common-sense provision, uh, which I've tried now for four years, has fallen victim to the struggle for jurisdiction between the committees. And the House and the Senate, you know, it gets to a bigger issue. I mean, across the board, there are common sense actions we need to take. But in many cases, you have overempowered and unelected staffers that have been working on Capitol Hill for 20, 30 years that feel like they can, in the course of a very secretive conference committee, take this out. And we as the members are often unaware until the last second and we're forced to vote on a bill without adequate debate. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping – that we can avoid this again. We're taking another run at the DJI Drone Act uh, this time around, and we're hoping to satisfy any concerns that other committees or senators might have. But this right. is just a common-sense move we need to take to defend ourselves. Michael, you sit there in, in the House, and there's so many issues you guys are never going to agree on. I'm heartened by how many people on your committee and in the Democratic Party understand the threat of China. This could be something we could unite around, could help unite the country about a, a, a very powerful, resourceful enemy that's looking to permeate every aspect of American life and bribe us with money and fortune and riches. And they're getting the major corporations, but they can't get the people if you educate. You educate the people, the corporations will feel the pressure. There is great hope here for bipartisan movement. That's certainly been the case with our committee thus far. It's been very bipartisan. There are disagreements within the parties, to be sure, and we can't paper over those. We need to have an honest debate. But in some sense, the biggest gap, I actually think, is between that sort of bipartisan consensus and certain industries like Wall Street or major American companies that have a lot of money that they want to make in China or a massive presence in China and who are thus willing to ignore massive human rights abuses or just the reality of what's happening on the ground. That's the real divide we need to bridge, and we need to force corporate America to take off right. the golden blindfolds and understand who they're dealing with in the CCP. We just need a piece of legislation from you guys to vote on and to debate. <laughs> it helps. Can you get that? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what we're working on. I mean, I think the House Republicans should unite behind a common sense China bill uh, that crosses multiple committee jurisdictions. Uh, I think we could put something out that's strong, that's targeted, that clinical, that's clinical and something that could actually bring along some of our Democratic colleagues that has a military component and economic statecraft component, as well as an ideological competition component. That's what we're working towards. And why didn't you want to run for the Senate? I know the Republicans really wanted you to do it. Why, why wasn't this the right time for you? You know, quite honestly, Brian, I just think the work we're doing on China with the Select Committee on China, and, and I get to be the chairman, it's a real privilege and opportunity 
to do something good for the country. I feel like we're in the window of maximum danger. Time is running out. I've dedicated myself and my public service to the prevention of war and for deterrence to work. And here I finally have an opportunity to effectuate that outcome and make lasting change. So I've always thought that the position and the title matters less than the work itself. And right now I have an opportunity to, right. to do very meaningful work in the House of Representatives. I know. That's what you said. <laughs> I, just, I thought you'd definitely make a run for it. Uh, but you are a rising star on the right. Congressman Mike Gallagher, chairman of the Select Committee on China. Thanks so much. Thank you, sir. All right. Uh, and that's the latest. Uh, in case you do not know, uh, the Secretary of State is heading back 10 hours overall, meeting with President Xi and his counterpart, foreign minister and others. We'll see where this goes from here. I just don't like the circumstances that got us in the door. It's humiliating. Back in a moment with your thoughts, Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. A poll from Quinnipiac on a, on a possible Biden-Trump match matchup puts Biden at 48%, Trump at 44%. This is a poll, again, uh, taken largely after the indictment. Uh, I mean, that's got to make you a little nervous. That's within the margin of error. That is a statistical tie. So what does that say about Biden if he's barely beating no, or in some polls actually losing? So Jonathan Carl points out that it's a four-point difference between the two head-to-head, despite the president's got two indictments. I feel differently. I saw most polls have President Trump above Joe Biden. And one of the reasons is that Joe Biden, 71 percent of the country, most Democrats don't want him to run again. He's too old. And I think Trump's policies are a whole lot better. The only thing holding Trump back from, I think, having a 15 to 20 point lead is... His actions since he lost the election. If it wasn't for that, I don't care where you stand on whether indictment should have happened or not. Everybody knows it's a folly in New York City, total politics. But the thing in Georgia, and I don't think he should be indicted for it, but I don't think he should be indicted for the documents either. They're going to try to indict him. Can you picture them punting at this point after putting all those months in and just going after Rudy Giuliani or some others? It's not going to happen. They're going after the big guy. And January 6th with this lunatic Jack Smith going for blood on everything. Look at his track record. He's at the Hague. He's going after Bob McDonald and everybody else. So you get looking at all those things. And I think it's really close only because of the indictments. If it wasn't for that, I think Trump would be up 15-20. Rob Schneider next.
information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm a traditional liberal, which makes me a right-wing fascist now. It does, automatically. You know, if you're for things like, you know, free speech or women's rights or equal rights... Don't judge a person by the color of their skin. Now they want you to judge somebody by the color of their skin. You know? If you're white, you're automatically racist. You know? It's like, what? Yeah. You're, you're white, you're racist. Really? I don't feel racist. Well, that's because you're... That's how racist you are. You don't feel racist. Rob Schneider is all pumped up because... what And what, so are we. Woke Up in America is available now on Fox Asia, as in this moment, Rob? Yeah, you can watch it. I love it. That's the thing about streaming services. They start at midnight, you know? Right. You can get, you can get, I can Have watch you watched it at midnight. It uh, I watched a little of it last night. It's just so funny because you spend so much time doing the color correction, you know, making sure the colors matches and everything, and the sound, and then you end up listening in on people listening on their phone, you know? It's like, <laughs> I did it in Dolby 5.1. It took a week. And like people are like listening to it on their phone. Or their speakers. You mean you watch? You you watch because well, on, on the Fox News app, you go to the you go to Fox Nation app. You watch on your phone. Yeah, you have to get used to that. Yeah, I, but the, the the point is, it's frustrating. It's like I see movies and I see you know I go to my friend's house. He's watching a movie. He's got the wrong setting on his TV. I said, do you know how how hard it is for these guys <laughs> to get the movie just right, and then you set it on video and it looks like crap. I'm watching Javier Bardem with some movie. And I said, you know how, how angry he would be if you're watching it on this thing? It's like he spent three months of his life on them. So, but it does. you got to just get over that stuff. But well, you I'm, do. I'm you clearly, have to. You have to. Right. No, I mean, because, uh, for example, even in the news, different uh, live. But now I never thought five years ago I'd be watching so much of my iPad and my iPhone. I know, but you have to because it's easily accessible. And it's your job. you got to watch it quickly. But, like, you know, I look at the you know today the news and, like, you know, I won't even say which website that did the um, – some little mini review on something that was released on something. And they, they it, taking your jokes out of context is like, you know, like I, I talk about how people moving from New York to Florida, you know, they, and they said he called them, blah, blah, blah. I said, it's a joke. And I said, and they are moving from New York and California to Florida. They don't act like they're not happening. Right. Don't lie to people, you know, but you use these things because people are hot right now and they're angry. And, and uh, but that's a good potential. You have to be more careful. But it's a good in inroads to get to interesting jokes. Yeah. I mean, what this is, is a lot of the stuff in the pandemic, a lot of stuff going on in society that you the set up telling the story. It, the setup is so implausible right. <laughs> that if you 10 years ago would say, yeah, we got to do this joke about why people think it's okay for men to play women's sports. You're like, well, it's not going to work. That would never. Well. I think who yeah. was going to believe no, no that? Who would believe let that? that happen? Who would go to bat for that? You know, it's it's just like with tolerance at its zenith becomes lunacy. You know, it just becomes um, where nothing, where words don't mean anything anymore. And maybe that's the point of what's happening is to just devolve Western culture. You know, I mean, I don't know what I else hope is that's happening. not the point. I, I but I don't know what, what, what the goal is. Left. Well, what is left? What are you going to replace it with? Uh, well, that's what the vulnerability in our system, unfortunately, it's vulnerable. You can have an industry like Big Pharma buy every congressman, every senator, and donate to them and, and have a real influence. And then you have the lobbyists at, at K Street in Washington, D.C., and they can influence policy, and they can shut down the world. It really can happen, and it did happen. And it's just like for people who, who – I, I kind of was hip to it very early – 
because I was attacked by pharma years ago. So I was, um, I kind of hit. What happened? Well, well, I was, you know, I asked questions. And here's the thing about Noam Chomsky, who doesn't get quoted a lot on Fox. (laughs) (laughs) As much as he should. As much as he should. But I agree with a lot of the things he says on some things. Obviously, I don't. But um, one of the things he talks about is that American discourse, we're allowed to talk about have vociferous, very, you know, you can talk about uh, in depth and, and violently, whatever, how, how you feel, uh, talk about certain subjects, but it's narrow. You're not allowed to talk about certain things. You're not allowed to question science or, you know, or the dogma of, of uh, pharma, pharmacological projects. Oh, I'm sorry, um, products. And if you do, you know, you can get shut down because that, that's how powerful it is. I mean, it really is. It's like in a non-election year, supposedly, pharma, pharma products uh, are advertised only in two countries, really, New Zealand and the United States, and it's 85% in a non-election right. year. I that's find, a lot of power. I mean, it is pretty amazing, too. I just realized a few years ago, like I found out about schizophrenia by watching about the medicine. They show schizophrenia and they show you somebody's mind separating and what it, with the horror that they have to live yeah. every day by this product. I'm thinking to myself, directly? Don't I need, yeah. don't I need a don't doctor I, to tell me this? I could buy ketchup on a commercial. <laughs> I don't know. I could, go, I could diagnose myself as schizophrenic and buy it. It works. It works. It sells cereal. It sells, you know, potato chips. And it sells drugs. You know, but I, I, love, I have lovely cousins. They're Filipino. That's, they have to be lovely because they're Filipino. And they have to be nurses because they're Filipino. Right. It's a, and, they, it's and, the and they have to be in New Jersey because they're Filipino. And so they, they're out there. And they just, they tell you, says, you know, they're doctors. They're such lovely people. You know, my, the Lapids, lovely people. They live out in New Jersey. Okay. And Dr. Renee Lapid and his lovely wife, Boots, is her name. Here's the thing about Filipinos. If you're a nickname, the Mexicans and Filipinos get, if you do something as a little kid, that's your nickname for life. Like this is this is this woman, <laughs> Maria Lapid. She's a doctor of nurses. She's a she teaches other nurses how to be doctors. How to how to be nurses. Okay. She played with boots when she was three years old, just a pair of boots. She put on her dad's boots. She's been boots ever since. <laughs> ah, she's eighty it. now, and she's still boots. And so they were saying, they said, Robert, the thing is, you have to understand when they come to us, and these are our patients, and they want to have a medication, and we say, well, what other drugs are you taking? There is no database telling us all the drugs that they are taking. And the problem is, they expect us to take the drugs because they saw the drug on the television, and they want to take it. And we say, no, you can't do that. If we say no, because it could have an interaction, we don't know what the interactions are, we don't know what this, and maybe you don't need this, they go to another doctor and they get it. And that's the truth. And so I don't think that the medical establishment and the medical, you know, I just think that there's a weakness in the system that the pharma, you know, the big pharmacy take advantage of. I didn't dive heavily into this, but part of the thing that, that Joe Biden just jammed down our throats with the Inflation Reduction Act is give the government ability to negotiate with big pharma to get the Bad prices idea. down. Right? <laughs> Bad idea. Right. And they, they're going crazy. They're stopping it. Don't let the government yeah, – don't let the government uh, – Negotiate. You, don't let the government negotiate with your contractor for, your, for, for what your roof you want to – Yeah, know. but right now it's what they say <laughs> they sign off on. So, yeah, we'll see um, what goes on there. But the one thing I wanted to uh, ask you too is when you bring this up, are you you're not worried about corporate America coming down on you? Who are you worried about? Like- I think you have to. I mean, at a certain point, um, you just have to wherever the authoritarianism is coming from, from which either side. I mean, I remember like in the in the early 80s with the moral majority and Jerry Far- Falwell. And I was thinking, well, that's too far. And it seems like I can't believe the flip flop, which has happened in the 
so-called liberal intelligentsia, they've taken the mantle of, of silencing people who they disagree with. And even, even in, a, in a greater way, because you have something that like the great dictators like Stalin and Mao and Hitler would have, well, I mean, the, the, to have the power where you can actually just, if you control the information and everything, I mean, Hitler was a really interesting one with Goebbels because he understood they can control the, the, the radio and they can control the movies, the cinema. And then he said, well, here's another thing they can control. When people, you don't have to go to the cinema. You don't have to listen to the radio. But you know what? One thing people can't, they can't avoid, billboards. It's ubiquitous, you know, and so the Nazis put that up everywhere. And that was and education, their, obviously. And, and education, yeah. yeah, right in schooling. So they just – and then they, you're able to to, to uh, really subvert uh, an entire society, and, and he, most of the people. Uh, here's what I do. I do think there's pushback, and there's like a lot of oh, yeah, people from, from people like you. I know Dave Chappelle went up and said this is lunacy. And when Yeah, you, it is, when, and then they get attacked, as, and then they, they don't know what else to call you. They can't just admit or debate, so they just they just demean you and just say, well, he's a right-winger. He's doing this right. You know, he's not – like I would say, like George Carlin, they would call him a right winger. Now it's right. unbelievable to me because I mean, these are liberal, traditional liberalisms. Uh, traditional liberals, like I consider myself, we're heretics now. Here is uh, another cut from Rob's brand new special on Fox Nation. Cut forty. It's not easy being a liberal. It's not. It's sad. You see them alone in their cars with their masks on. I don't want to give COVID to myself. Hey, you in the other car, my mask only works when you're wearing I've got nothing against masks, seriously. I mean, for some people, it was the best thing that ever happened for two years. Seriously, seriously. You know who I'm talking about. People with really sexy eyes, but a f***ed up grill. You know? I was swearing too much in that right. special. Right. Do you, do you really feel it? <laughs> oh, no, I just, with you're an audience, it helps a little. I was feeling it. But also the... The thing about it was, you know, you go on a plane now and said, no, please respect people who choose to wear masks. They did not say that when we were not like they, they were like, put that on or get off the plane or you're killing grandma. So I don't think that they were as kind to us, you know, for those well, people who I mean, I remember the lunacy early. We, well, I realized it was crazy early. I remember they woke up my daughter two or three times because her mask dropped while she was sleeping. Infuriating. I mean, it's unbelievable. And especially when, like, that was the thing that got me, like, just seeing, like, the, the people here in New Jersey and New York, you know, the educators and governor, crazy lady now, she having, seeing Hokel. her. Kukul. Cuckoo. Kokel, is it? I liked what you said about Kukul. Cuckoo. She standing in a classroom and they're standing without masks and the little kids, the kindergartners, pre-kid, pre-K, and they're all wearing masks. And that's what well, that sums up these people. That says, and that's going to be there for life. That photo. And, and Stacey Abrams too. That, that picture. Means when she was for running. life. And seeing like kids in plexiglass and kids playing instruments inside tents. And I said, well, that is child abuse. And I said that, and people really tried to ridicule me. I said, that is child abuse. And that, who knows what's going to happen. I feel sorry for like, because the studies have not come out yet completely, but if some of the stuff that I have read is that there is, uh, like, you know, for, for, for kids, people of color, and who were just catching up to the reading and to the math with, with other kids, um, they now that's fallen off the cliff because the idea that they were able to just go online and said, and you see kids trying to they really have how they going to go online? How yeah. are they going to go online? So they're standing outside near Starbucks to get into the, you know, to get the Wi-Fi. It was really an attack on the poor, in so many ways. And you know what the biggest attack on the poor is? The charter schools. 
uh, oh, yeah. the charter schools that have produced Stanford just did a study. And they said that the grades went up uh, 26% or something. These kids get an extra 16 hours of school a, a week. By far, the minorities are the greatest one to benefit from charter schools. Mm-hmm. They have money and buildings set aside. But the teachers unions put so much pressure on the supermajority in New York, and I imagine other yeah. places, but I know here up close and personal. And they said, that's it for the charter schools. So they went back and tried to lobby to open it up, and they still won't do it. So they only added maybe five or six. That keeps thousands of kids away from a quality education. If, if you want to hurt. That will change their lives. If you want to help society, you have to increase education for as many people as you can. If you want to hurt society, you you decrease the um, potentiality of kids to get good education. Where do you live now? Arizona, right? Yeah, we moved to Arizona because I, I saw what was happening early right. in California. So we got to get out. We got to get out now. Do you want to know how smart you are to not work for Saturday Night Live and live happy for to live in New York <laughs> and a lean to whatever you had? Well, I know you didn't have much. You want to hear it? Yes. Here is Jerry Nadler on the problem uh, with Chip Roy's legislation that would have prevented any of these autocratic rules like the ones that came down during the pandemic. Nadler spoke up against it. Listen to this. And when we have a pandemic like COVID-19 pandemic that we had, two-year-olds should have been required to wear masks. It would be child abuse for parents not to do that because there was no vaccination available for two-year-olds. Okay. Wow, that's crazy. How crazy? Now, try to keep try to keep a diaper on a two year old. You know that's not easy. You know, try to keep a T shirt on them. Try to cover their mouth. There, that's there child no, abuse. And that guy's an no, idiot. He's a professional of idiot. He, he's, but he's a he, powerful idiot. I know. Well, that's why you have to have term limits. And I think you got to have you got people age out. You know, like that guy. So you you need to test drive. If you're if you're eighty five, you should be tested every six months to drive. And if you're eighty five, you should be like he needs to be tested to be in Congress. You know, to be. Right. To be in the Senate, I think they have to do the same thing. You could see it. And it, it is, unfortunately, um, they don't want to give up power. And that's either party. Right. They, want, they don't want to give up power. And unfortunately, that, that's what, you know, that's what needs to happen. People have to put their own interests to take mm-hmm. a back seat. And, and those are the great leaders. I mean, George Washington, they say the greatest gift he ever gave to the country was to turn down being king. Right. But well, the one thing, I think people, my staff here on the radio, they look at me as the George Washington radio because <laughs> I, I will turn down. Thank you. I could you. live, I could reign forever. Yes, and I've exactly. turned down an opportunity. Rob's got a brand new special out. It's called Woke Up in America. He's got a few more minutes with us when we come back. You Right now, I encourage you to wait till after this, this half hour is done. You could download it now and you could find yourself laughing because Rob is that good. And it goes Thank for an you. hour and 15 minutes, right? Yeah, it's a good one. It's three hours of my, the last... Three years of lunacy that I've uh, lived under and lived with, and it's like it's a for and me it, it's an emotional mikvah. And how about this? Color corrected. <laughs> it's color corrected. <laughs> the sound is amazing. Watch it on your big screen. That's what it was meant. Not for. on your phone. You heard him. Back in a moment. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. I, I, I uh, would, would just um, really like to, you know, the 95, 95, 95, you know, um, you know, obviously that, you know, you're pretty much preoccupied with the with 95. 
And I, I certainly am, too. And so that is Senator Fetterman on the floor when asked by a fellow Democrat, Rob Schneider, to just say something about the collapse 95 throughway and when it could be back on and for the people, for the guy who lost his life. And here we are six, seven months in. Yeah. He clearly cannot speak. He cannot do this job. And he dresses like a poor gym teacher in I front know. of the president. I mean, where do, I how the hell does this guy get elected? I feel bad for him, but he needs treatment. Anyone who likes him wouldn't put him out there. I know. It's like all the great Benjamin Rush, Dwight David Eisenhower, Benjamin Franklin, and the great the state of Pennsylvania has given another gift, another leader. Fetterman, John Fetterman, you know, it's uh, it is it is a, a sign of the times. Trying to, de- you cannot defend uh, him being an elected official. You would not defend him being like literally. Uh, you'd have to go. I don't know if you can be janitor at this school. You know, what I mean? and you know the thing is, I don't even think he wants to do it. He wanted to do a depression when he got it. So how do you? This is you know, Doctor Oz. Yeah. Is a communicator, top five syndicated host for the last twenty years. Yeah, and he's one of the world's most respected, the country's most respected surgeons. Why would you want to hire that guy? <laughs> Why? What, Why what good would, would he do? What do you need? This guy's a doctor. <laughs> this other guy here, he's he ripped he, his sleeves <laughs> off, <laughs> and he wears a hoodie. This other guy's got a head on the back of his head. We need to get. I'm sorry to say, but it's he does uh, have a head on the back. Of his I know head. it is. It is a sad uh, state of affairs where they just. It, but it really does peel back the onion, another layer. Of, uh, of saying they just want a body out there. They just want to vote. And it's doesn't so matter naked. It doesn't matter. You know, I mean, it, it is. Um, but uh, if people have to, it has to bottom out. And you, when you think it's bottomed out, they oh, it can't get any worse than this. They're not going to vote for a guy who can't speak, are they? Are they? They did. <laughs> I know. It's sad. But it's, it's uh, you know. You, the people get the, the government they deserve. And in the state of Pennsylvania, I guess they deserve that. That's all we can say, except for the people in Pennsylvania. I love them, He though. does love them, especially if you have to want to sell out an arena. <laughs> yeah. Rob, congratulations on the special. I know you're Thank pumped you up so for it. so much. Can we talk about this on the Saturday night show? Absolutely. One Absolutely. All right. And promise you'll wear that same outfit. Oh, you got it, brother. Fox News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. I come to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan, heard around the country, around the world. And if you're a baseball fan, you don't want to be in New York these days. It was supposed to be a great year. The Yankees get swept by the Red Sox and the Mets in front of a capacity crowd on Father's Day, blow a big comeback and lose 8-7 to the Woeful Cardinals. By the way, you can get the podcast anytime, briankilmeadeshow.com, if you can't listen to it live. And I hope you can. Uh, before we get to... On this hour, we're going to be joined by Daryl Johnson of the Dallas Cowboys, former Dallas Cowboy and Philadelphia Eagle. And first, uh, we're going to go to Michael Goodwin. Uh, but first, let's go to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. But it is worth mentioning that we are not at Union Square or the Westfield Mall this morning because we have been advised it is simply too dangerous to be there at this hour. Michael. Not saying a lot there, Matt. Matt Gutman, who's just fresh off a stint in Ukraine, is too dangerous in San Francisco. Don't state the obvious. San Fran Mayor London Breach sounded off on the GMA reporter for stating the obvious that crime in the city is out of control. We'll break it down. Number two. A poll from Quinnipiac on a, on a possible Biden-Trump match matchup puts Biden at 48 percent 
Trump at 44%. This is a poll, again, uh, taken largely after the indictment. That's within the margin of error. That is a statistical tie. He can't understand it. In fact, most polls have Trump up. 2024, still all about Trump for now. His double-figure lead not affected by the indictment for now. The game plan for the rest of the field is they fan out and speak out. Plus, Biden hit the campaign trail this weekend. And why so few are excited about the idea of four more years of Joe. Number one. China's sending a message. Hey, we're in charge now. You're finished to the to the West and to the United States. And, and I think it's indicative of what they hope to achieve. That is H.R. McMaster, the general. He's upset about the visit. Weakness. Secretary of State Blinken meets with his counterpart and with President Xi in China, despite being scolded before getting there and being treated like a third-rate world diplomat. The perception is we beg for this meeting. This is the Biden foreign policy in a nutshell. And Michael Goodwin, I know you wrote about Trump and I'll get to it. But I just got to ask you about our trip over there. The secretary of state met, they say, for seven hours with various foreign affairs uh, minister officials and then did not know until 45 minutes before that he would meet with President Xi, which is insulting. Should we have even had this meeting? Well, good morning, Brian. Look, I think that was the whole point of the scheduling was to insult Blinken and to uh, create a sense of, uh, you know, we're deigning to see you. Uh, and But yet, I think in some sense, that is the reality which has been created in part by China's aggression and in part by Biden's uh, weakness. And so... Th- they have China before our eyes has essentially reversed the relationship and made themselves the top dog. They couldn't have done this without uh, America's help, and that's the real tragedy here. And so whether Blinken should have gone, uh, the general rule in these things, you, you don't go unless you have a certain sense of what you can achieve and that it's and that that's a good thing for your country if you you don't go if you know you're going to be humiliated as blinken was i mean he is if you think about it we will work with the netherlands japan south korea to limit their chip related exports to, to china we're trying to go out of our way to arm taiwan we're taking our time for some reason don't get it don't understand it but we are doing it uh, we are uh, citing it, but at the same time trying to meet with them. And this, they turned out a meeting with our secretary of defense after they send a spy balloon and don't come clean on the pandemic origins. We still beg to see them. Uh, and then it, for after getting a stiff arm, finally get a yes. And we don't really have any achievables except for a pledge to have more flights to China and have more exchanges of students. Uh, no, thank you. We have enough Chinese students here. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I think the uh, the administration has misplayed this. And, and Brian, you know, we, the the spy balloon is, and I think from for most people, the most graphic illustration, you know, because it's so obvious and, and apparent before us that this thing goes over the heartland of America. And then they Biden has it shot down once it's over water. But don't forget, this was the Blinken, this was the trip Blinken wanted to take then. And the reason they withheld sh- 
shooting it down and even no, even acknowledging it publicly, although people on the ground spotted it over the Rocky Mountains, uh, was that they didn't want to upset the Blinken trip. So right away, China says, wow, they're really beggars, aren't they? They're really coming here sort of hat in hand, and they'll, they'll let us humiliate them it's amazing. rather than cancel the trip. And so I think this, this trip, the failure of this trip, was, was written long ago. It didn't just happen now. The spy balloon was, I think, in many ways, the breakout moment when we realized that China was playing a different game and, and had assumed a far different mm-hmm. superior position than before. Here's what Michael Walt said. Cut one. Secretary Blinken should not be on this trip. I don't know what more that Chinese Communist Party has to do in terms of violating uh, U.S. sovereignty and, and international law uh, for us to take a tough stand and not send our Secretary of State and our Defense Secretary last week over there on bended knee that plays right into Chinese propaganda. And, and he goes on. And Rand Paul feels the exact opposite. Shows you Republicans have diversity of short uh, of, of thought, but I definitely think Waltz knows and is right. So let's switch over to the uh, to the race for the GOP nomination. Trump's favorable favorables were at 68 percent in February among Republicans and independents that lean Republicans. Now it's at 76 percent. That's after two indictments to go just a little further before. This is the marriage PBS poll. Fifty six percent of Americans think Trump should drop out of the 2024 race because of the indictments. Forty three percent said he should continue to run, which is really his approval when he left office. What do you think about, and you write about this this week, about Trump's hold on the party still? Well, look, Brian, I think, you know, a, a lot of these numbers are uh, probably in flux. Some of them are contradictory, different polls. It's sometimes difficult to compare different pollsters' methods and things. But I do think it, it is true that Trump still has the lion's share of Republican voters uh, and that he is clearly the top dog in a primary, in the primary race. In fact, it's really not much of a race. And as I wrote on Sunday, uh, his lead over second-place candidate uh, Ron DeSantis was, according to a, a six polls uh, back in May, six recent national polls in May, he had a 33-point lead, an average of 33-point lead over DeSantis. Well, I calculated six uh, recent national polls in June, the six most recent ones, and he now has a a 30-point lead. Uh, So there's been virtually no movement uh, as these indictments and, and news about them has continued and continued. So I don't, I'm not sure, you know, most Republicans and the Paul Ryans and, and other people, the Cornyn and uh, uh, Cassidy in Louisiana, all, you know, Chris Sununu in New Hampshire, they all think that about half of uh, President Trump's Republican support can be peeled away, that half of it is just there permanently forever, and uh, it's, it's Trump or death, and uh, the other half, they believe, <coughs> can be peeled away. But we haven't seen any evidence of that yet. Uh, you know, just, you would think that if if it was going to be peeled away, the indictments would be a part of that. Now, look, it's still early in the process. Nobody's voted yet. There haven't been any caucuses. Uh, but for now, it looks to me like the 
the Trump vote is holding yep. uh, and even growing in some quarters. And so what some what some Republicans are doing now is fine-tuning their arguments against him. They're saying he can't win a general election, ergo don't nominate him. Uh, so far, that's not working either because, as you say, some of the polls show him beating Biden in a general election. And, and I think if, if there was a real conviction among all Republicans that he couldn't win the general election, then some of those voters would peel away from him. But that conviction is not there. So it's kind of in a holding pattern right now. I know. And uh, the president is, you know, f- dealing with indictments in a speech here and there. He's not going full bore where he's going four or five events a day where the other the rest of the field is. Peter Baker weighed in on what the rest of the field is looking for. And because, you know, the fa- the problem, you doesn't matter what you think of Trump. He might be your best friend or he might be your worst enemy. But you have to win the nomination, beat him, and also bring his voters. That means how you win has everything to do with whether you'll win the general. Here's what Peter Baker says the rest of the field is looking for. Cut 12 of The New York Times. He is the all-consuming part of the Republican primary right now. And to Halley's point, I get the point. We're not having votes yet. So maybe if you're going to eventually take that knives out, you want to wait till you get closer to when the votes begin rather than make yourself a target for him for the next three or four or five months. I think the real strategy, though, is they're just waiting for Trump to beat himself because right now none of them can beat him. So they're waiting for him to sell really well. (laughs) Well, two more indictments do it. Just judging by the. the Yeah. I mean, it's remarkable when you think about it. Right. By the time of the Iowa caucuses begin, he could have four indictments hanging over his head of criminal charges. I mean, that's remarkable. And he lost that civil suit. Uh, yeah. on uh, the, the charge of sexual assault and uh, defamation in, in Manhattan. So, look, you know, it, it, is, it is a kind of gravity-defying moment uh, that he continues. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of people thought that any one of these cases would be fatal to him and to his campaign, but it's, it's been quite the opposite, particularly the, the first, the Alvin Bragg uh, case in New York, uh, actually drove up Trump's numbers. And, you know, Brian, I think that's one of the issues with all of these cases. There's, I, just, I, I think of it in terms, there's some hair on all of them. There's something wrong about all of them. They're not quite, you know, the kind of thing you can say, aha. I mean, just for example, the federal charge on, on uh, classified documents. Well, what about Joe Biden's classified documents? Where's that investigation? We haven't heard a peep from the so-called special counsel, Robert Hur. Not a peep, not a leak, nothing, right? Or, and then, of course, there's the Hillary Clinton in the Alvin Bra- uh, in her classified document issue. She walks away from that. So this sense that Trump is being treated unfairly by uh, Democratic prosecutors, prosecutors in all these cases undercuts the credibility of the cases for many Republicans and not just Republicans. I mean, there was a there was a survey by ABC News and 47 percent, 47 percent of all respondents, respect irrespective of party, thought that the case was politically motivated. Forty seven percent. I want you to hear about Roberts, this guy, uh, about uh, Jason Smith. Uh, so he's the one, uh, Jack Smith, Jason. Uh, Jack Smith is the one uh, person yes. is prosecuting, right? And he's doing the January 6th, too. Well, this guy's got a terrible record. I don't know what he was doing in The Hague except harassing people, but he lost the Senator Menendez case. They, he lost the uh, – uh, and he lost the Bob McDonald case. And Bob McDonald spent $23 million 
to fight uh, after he was ousted at Virginia's, as Virginia's governor, just had one term, and they said all about these campaign uh, about doing favors for people. And it turns out Jack Smith was on a mission to destroy him. This is the same guy. Listen to him recounted on with Michael Smirkanish yesterday uh, on Saturday. Cut thirty four. My case, you know, uh, Michael, uh, it's it's long in the past uh, now, uh, but uh, we wrote a thirty eight page brief. We gave the government in advance, telling them why their theory of the case were wrong. We had amicus briefs filed by people like the former uh, White House counsel for five U.S. presidents, from Reagan to Obama. Uh, 83 former attorneys general saying why this was wrong. And yet, you know, they persisted. And so, you know, what I get out of that is uh, I think he's uh, been overzealous in some of these so-profile cases. He's willing to stretch the law. John Roberts called it a boundless interpretation that would catch up uh, politicians in their ordinary acts that they do for uh, people. And and I think it's just uh, says maybe a lack of judgment. And uh, that's the concern that I get out of my case and the others. That's what a guy experienced with Jack Smith, and that's what people are looking at. You're not supposed to go in there as a prosecutor, and pro- you're supposed to investigate. If there's no criminal intent there, you don't prosecute. That's a little different. He's going He's going for the jugular, and he gets himself in trouble. Well, and, and you know, the Supreme Court case, he mentions John Roberts. Uh, uh, you know, they threw this thing out and basically making it harder to uh, indict and convict sitting government officials. And I, I, at, the, at the time, I, I thought that was going to have impacts across the spectrum, and it has. Uh, nonetheless, uh, it clearly looks like the right decision that, you know, you cannot narrowly define these things just because you think it's wrong and you think maybe he's a bad guy. I'm going to nail him. I mean, the ordinary citizen can think and feel that way, but a federal prosecutor cannot. And I think it's good that the Supreme Court overturned the McDonald's Nine case. Zero. And yeah, and and I think the Menendez case lost at the trial, as far as I can recall. Uh, and so his, as you say, his record is spotty at best. He does seem to be overzealous. And this whole thing with the documents, uh, you know, I, reading the indictment, Brian, it's not clear to me why he goes to a grand jury. That is the big step, because once you go to a grand jury, and then you get the grand jury subpoena, and then you get the raid on Mar-a-Lago, you know, where's the grand jury subpoena on Joe Biden? Yeah. Where's the, where was the grand jury subpoena Well, they'll on say Hillary that he's Clinton? been cooperating. They were all voluntary. Right. Uh, yeah, and, they were cooperating, so, but not fast enough, um, and I agree. If you think about this in the big case, was he wrong? I think, yeah, they take the documents, just give it up, we have no problem. Absolutely. But then, but is this the reason to indict a president? I don't think so. Uh, and I think we're going to see some stuff tossed out by this uh, by this judge. And, of course, that will upset some people. Michael Goodwin, always read his column, uh, nypost.com, uh, mgoodwin underscore nypost. Thanks, Michael. My pleasure, Brian. Thank you. You got it. I'll, I have some calls on the back end, one 408 7669 Then Daryl Johnson, then your calls again. You'll listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. It's Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, Hank, you're listening to WNIS in beautiful Virginia Beach. What's on your mind, Hank? 
Hey, Brian. How you doing? Good. What's on your mind? Happy belated Father's Day to you, buddy. Thank you. Hey, my buddy's got great Pyrenees. Uh, one of them's called Norman. The thing is a monster. I love him. I know you got the same. Got three. <laughs> Here's what's on my mind. I think the conflict of interest that China helped build the Penn Biden Center at the University of Pennsylvania and Blinken worked there. And all of a sudden now Blinken is the Secretary of Defense. I mean, Secretary of State. I know. It's kind of like a conflict of interest because, in a way, he works for China. No? Uh, can we please get to the bottom of this? Is anyone interested in this besides us? I mean, it's fascinating. By the way, guess where the classified documents were? At the Penn Center. Was Blinken looking at them? Did he ask for them? Was he in charge of them? So, and what do they say? What are those documents? What do they reveal? What do they focus on? We know everything about Trump's documents, which is not exonerating Trump, but people just look at this and go, is this even remotely fair? Are they even trying to be fair? They think we're all knuckleheads? Or they think everybody must hate Trump. No, everybody. I hate to tell you, 72 million people don't. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. From the six. Perry fumbled the snap. Scoops it up. He's got running room. Can he get around the corner? He does. They'll try the two-point conversion attempt. Another problem with his snap exchange. And Gary runs out of real estate. And they get it anyway. Marcus Ball catches it. Reggie Corbin dancing, and he gets the first down. Philadelphia can't stop the clock anymore. And, And there you go. That is some of the highlights from year two of the USFL as they close out their regular season. Uh, so final scores in week 10, you have uh, uh, Pittsburgh beating New Jersey 26-6. to uh, Birmingham, uh, 27-20 winners over Memphis. New Orleans, 17-10 winners over Houston. And Philadelphia downs Michigan 20 to, excuse me, Michigan downs Philadelphia, just heard, 23-23. Uh, uh, to 20, They beat the Stars. Joining us now, Daryl Johnson, uh, former uh, three-time Super Bowl champion, uh, former NFL running back, for the fullback for Dallas and Philadelphia and USFL executive vice president of football operations. Daryl, welcome back. How does, how does it feel to close out two complete regular seasons? Oh, it's, it's been awesome. It's been awesome. It was a, uh, it was a great weekend with, with really everybody still alive. There were a couple of teams that needed a lot of help uh, to, to get to the playoffs, but they were going into week 10 with an opportunity uh, last year. We probably had our playoffs set about week six. So it was just, it was so much more fun this year. And then everything really kind of pushing to, to last night. And, and I agree with you. I, I think I would make that mistake too, Brian. You, you would keep saying, that Philadelphia won that game. We watched the first half, and it looked like they were just in complete control of everything. And then EJ Perry brings Michigan back. So, uh, you know, we were listening to it on the way back from Memphis, and then when we got home, I, you know, I turned the TV on, and, and I couldn't believe what happened in the in the ten minutes. I didn't get a chance to see the game or listen to the game, and, and Michigan has taken control. So, um, just great to have you know a couple of our first year head coaches. Uh, you know, with an opportunity to win a championship during the USFL season two. Uh, no doubt about it. So it sets up the the semifinals, and then you'll have the finals in Canton. Uh, the Pittsburgh Maulers against the Michigan Panthers, that'll be on Saturday, followed by uh, Birmingham against New Orleans on Sunday. The winners will play the championship game the following Saturday. Uh, that'll be July 1st. 
and that'll be in Canton, Ohio, and that'll be a spectacle, of course, and that's where you uh, get the Hall of Fame and everything else around that. So it sets up a really good uh, semifinal game. Uh, and the location of both games are? Yeah, this is the cool thing this year. Um, we had a conflict at Ford Field. Uh, unfortunately, uh, there was a concert, so we were going to do our North semifinal in Canton, regardless of what the teams were. But we're trying to get that that home crowd advantage, home field advantage uh, for one of our playoff teams in each division. So uh, with, with the movement from Ford Field down to Canton, um, you know, It'll be Michigan and Pittsburgh playing in Canton. It'll be New Orleans and Birmingham playing in Birmingham. Um, evening games, uh, one of the things that we've talked about with our attendance, uh, we, we've got some tremendous fans that support our teams uh, in Memphis and in Birmingham because it has been hot. And, and this will be an opportunity for us to kind of get into the early part of the evening on a Sunday night. And uh, we, we're just really, really excited to see how many people we, we pull out for the third matchups in, in both of these games, you know, one of the, you know, the unique things of only having the eight teams, you know, in your division, you play twice during the course of the season. So you're going to have a, a third matchup in our playoffs each year. So uh, excited to see what happens here in the third go round, especially down here in the South with Birmingham and New Orleans. I know it's going to be, uh, it's going to be feisty in the Birmingham hub this week. So going through the lineup, you never know who's going to emerge. I mean, for example, when you're, when you're an athlete, any level, especially in football. A lot of times you come into your own at 25, but you graduated 22. If you don't make the NFL, where are you going to go? You know, there's almost nowhere to go. You try to get into camp, get a, get some tape, and uh, up until the last two years uh, with the USFL, now you have a chance to play professional football uh, and, and have a chance to develop. And a lot of people, like again, hit your stride at 26, 27, or 25. You don't do it at 22 in football, unlike basketball, baseball, everything else. You really – soccer especially, you, you have plenty of options – you, you really screwed up until now. Now in year two, remember the AAF failed, the XFL failed. You guys come back, pull off two straight years. Who do you see? Do you see some talent emerging that could get NFL invites? Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. And, and it's it's kind of funny. It's been, you know, different positionally this year than last year. Last year I thought we had, you know, some really good edge rushers. I thought we had some really good safeties. Uh, obviously, you know, the way we structure our, our special teams, especially on the kickoff, we create opportunities for our return guys. And, and Kevonte Turpin was able to take advantage of that. Um, and, and we've done that again this year. We've, we've had a number of guys uh, who have really, you know, shown themselves as, as very good returners. But now you've got to take that and, and match that with what they do from a positional standpoint. But we're giving them the opportunity as returners uh, to kind of showcase that along with, hey, he'd be a, in the NFL, he'd be a great fourth or fifth wide receiver with those return skills, with his coverage skills on special teams. Yeah. So the emphasis on special teams that we do in the USFL is twofold. You know, I want to bring back the excitement of the kickoff return. When I grew up as a young boy watching the NFL, you know, that, that was a great position. There were great return guys. And, and we've kind of, we've kind of lost that. And I know there's, it's that, that give and take between player safety and, and one of the more exciting plays in the game. It, it was a dangerous play. It was a violent play. I understand that, but it's also very exciting. And, and we've had great success in not increasing you know, the, the threat of concussions to our guys, the way we've structured our kickoff returns, but we've, we've added that excitement back into the game. So I really think this season, when we look at where are we strong, um, you know, one of the areas I've seen is our stack linebacker, which is an undervalued position in the NFL. Uh, you, you watched Frank Ginda last night. He's one of the names 
that's getting kicked around for defensive player of the year. Um, you know, I, I think our safeties are strong again this season. Uh, I think our tight ends have done well this season. Say Sherratt for New Orleans, Jay Sternberger for uh, Birmingham will be two of the guys featured, you know, in the Southern Division Championship game this weekend at the tight end position. Um, you know, I think some of our interior defensive linemen, we talked about the edge last year. This year, it seems like our defensive tackles are playing well. And then, and I, I, there's that unique guy that we have that, that doesn't have the measurables that the NFL looks at. And we have these guys sprinkled all through our, our, our league, Brian. Um, you know, Chiabatizino in Pittsburgh is a guy, well, where does he fit in the NFL? It does not matter. Just go watch his film. He's a hell of a football player. Um, Isaiah Henney, where, where's he going to fit at that level? You know, Justin Hall, where's he going to fit at the NFL level? Just watch their film. You got to see Justin Hall up close and personal this weekend again, you know, with Houston. He is one of the toughest, smaller players you'll see in the NFL. And, and I shouldn't use that word because that's one of the things I do all the time. He's not small. He's short, you know, but he, he is a powerful physical uh, player on the field. So I, I think that that's mm-hmm. one of the areas where we've got that type of guy sprinkled throughout our league is he doesn't fit the measurables from the NFL positions, but they get down here with us in the USFL, and you can see that they're just really, really tough football players. I know, just people love uh, watching the football. They're seeing the product. Now, we see Birmingham drew pretty is, uh, drew pretty well this year. they got to play a bunch of home games, uh, so that definitely helped Michigan too. Do you see next year some of these franchises doing what they did in the MLS, being sold to the Bob Crafts of the world, the Phil Anschutz of the world, while still being the single entity concept with the league controls? I, I think our first goal is to try and get every one of our eight teams into their home market. You know that that's that's you know our big our big first. Would you step. have to sell you know, the we, team first? I don't think so. I think we can still start to you know we we can start those conversations. Um, you know, obviously that is a model that that's part of our, our end game um, is to, to actually get these out to the own, you know, individual owner operators for the franchises, but, but kind of stand them up, you know, add value to that franchise. So when somebody comes in, there's a lot of the critical pieces are already in place and it, it, it's kind of a plug and play situation yep. for an ownership group to come in and grab probably them. So increase the value more by that time. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Why rush the value right now? Um, you know, you've seen the escalation in prices from the MLS and, and where they started and where they are now. They're at about three hundred million dollars. If you want to buy a franchise in the MLS, three hundred million dollars. Yeah, and and what did uh, David Beckham pay for Inter Miami uh, when about when 50. he purchased that hundred? Yeah, I mean, so you you just see the value in those franchises, and that's you've got to demonstrate the success of the league, but you also have to be able to, to create that franchise and, and make it enticing for somebody to step in. And one of the great things is, is you know, it, there's a lot of group wealth, individual wealth in our country, um, but you're not buying an NFL franchise. That That is, there are very, very few people uh, as, as an individual. Didn't they just sell for a billion? Didn't you just six sell billion, for a, six billion? Six billion dollars. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Washington, six billion. Um, you know, it, it, it just uh, what what the estimated value of these franchises are, and then when they go on the market and they're actually sold, the disparity is is huge. So, if you have the desire to be an owner of a professional team, we're going to give you an opportunity to do that at a threshold that really doesn't exist anywhere yeah. else. And as you pointed out, the MLS is now up to average price for a franchise three hundred million dollars. So, uh, again, there's there's not many groups, there's not many individuals, even with the amount of wealth that's been generated in our country. Um, 
that you can afford to, to buy some of these franchises in other leagues. Daryl Johnson, our guest, you're just talking about the end of another regular season with the USFL. Remember, the AAF started, failed. Uh, the XFL started, the pandemic hit, it failed. A year off, USFL comes back, XFL comes back. Now there's a place for these uh, players to go, and there's football for fans to see. Uh, and do you believe, Daryl, that only one league can survive? Uh, that's the big question, right? Um, is there enough talent? Uh, is there enough uh, interest, um, you know, from the fan bases, you know, to to have two leagues function in the spring? I, I think there's enough opportunity that we can present to guys. Um, you know, we just we challenge our people, you know, to be very very diligent uh, in the evaluation of our players. Um, you know, we're looking for, you know, for the the, the total player. You know, the not just talent on the field. Um, you know, we like to get into the communities where our teams are located. We like our players to engage in that community. So we're looking for, for high quality young men, um, not, not just great football players, but you know, that well-rounded uh, player. Right. So, um, you know, I, I don't know. I think that that's, that's the million dollar question that everybody wants to see. And that's what everybody keeps, you know, kind of putting us head to head. But uh, you know, I just, I, Everybody here in the USFL family, we keep our heads down. Uh, we worry about ourselves, and we can we control what we can control. We ask our players to do that all the time, so we have to set that example at the top. So we don't worry about our competition out there. If we take care of ourselves, everything else will take care of itself. All right, so, Daryl, what time are the games on Saturday? Uh, you're going to catch me uh, before I've really gotten an opportunity to look. I think we're going to be – I'm going to go off central time for you because I'm in the central time zones. I think we're both – 6 p.m. Central time kicks, so it would be 7 p.m. Eastern time kicks. Um, Fox on Sunday, NBC on Saturday in the north. Um, I'm almost I'm almost positive that they're both six, but don't hold me to that. Okay. Uh, but yeah, both evening games, which uh, you know I, I think is going to be something that we may even learn a little bit down here. And, and we've talked about this. Mm-hmm. You know, if we expand in the south and we get all of our teams into their home markets. We will be in Houston, Memphis, Birmingham, and New Orleans. And it is hot, hot, hot once we get to the end of May and, and go into June. So our last month of our season, it could be real challenging for our guys during the practice week and for our fans to come on game day if we're kicking off at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So we're really excited to see what happens here in Birmingham with an evening kick. And maybe that's something we can, we can add a little bit more of next season as we set our times uh, for season three. Gotcha. Uh, Daryl Johnson, last, an NFL question for a Fox Sports analyst. You ready? Everyone's, so. everyone's talking about Baker Mayfield. Uh, at this stop, he showed some life with the Rams after disappointing in other stops. Do you think that he replaces Tom Brady and has a solid season this year? Um, I think the time that you can spend with Sean McVay uh, is, is time well spent. Uh, I think that there are certain places out there when you get a player to, uh, he continues to grow because there's great coaching around him. Um, there, there are certain people that just are able to kind of tap into, especially that quarterback position. Um, you, you watch Baker Mayfield and, and all the stops he's been in. I, I, I think a lot of it has to be on his shoulders too. Um, I, I think you've seen him grow and mature uh, since he was taken in Cleveland. Um you know, the one thing that you see from – I saw it firsthand with Troy Aikman. You can see it with Tom Brady. You know, the great quarterbacks have that, that, that fire with inside of them. But they, they always are under control on the field. Uh, they hold everybody accountable. And, and you can see them get upset with people from time to time because they haven't done their job correctly. Um, but I think sometimes Baker's a little bit too emotional. Uh, you, you let things that really aren't important 
in the game start to become an impact on you emotionally. Uh, and, and I think that that's one area where he can continue to grow. At. Hey, it's great to be emotional about the game. It, it's great to hate losing, but don't get caught up in some of that peripheral stuff. Don't let that be a distraction to you because you're the most important guy. You've got to be laser focused at your position. So I, I think that that's still one area he can grow with. But I think the time that he gets to spend with Sean McVay, right. uh, you know, around that learning the, the, the ins and out of playing the quarterback position is, is going to be really valuable for him. He should be better just with the time that he got to spend there. Got to see it. All right, there's your NFL question. That's your other job. Uh, but right now you're running the, uh, the USFL. Daryl, congratulations. Best of luck in the final two games, final three All games. All right, Brian. Yep, thank you so much. I appreciate it. You got it. Daryl Johnson, USFL, one 866 I want to get your calls in just a moment. When we come back, or you can write me, BrianKillMe.com. Uh, click on comments, and I'll get to them then. Don't move. The fastest-growing talk show in America. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Now, as some of you know, I'd usually come down and say hi to all of you. They tell me there's a storm coming in. Is that right? Is that still the deal? That's the truth. Now, don't make a lie. As that that scene in the John Wayne movie, don't make me a dog-faced lion pony soldier. All right. God save the queen, man. I mean, what do you say to that? What do you say to that? I mean, it, no, the pool reporter, when asked, said, I have no idea what he meant. I, I, I don't know. One, no one knows. God save the queen, man. Dog face pony soldier, which he screwed it up. He screwed that up after he never even defined doing it when he was on the campaign. That's insane. No, I know Axios writes it up today sort of saying like, oh, he's sort of known for saying these weird words. But it also shows this odd pattern that no one can explain what the heck he's saying. Yeah, when he says um, it's from a John Wayne uh, movie, it says uh, film aficionados haven't found it. But there is a 1952 Western called Pony Soldier. But Wayne's not in it. Like all these facts are just like thrown up in the air and just put into a sentence. Is he a liar, though? Never a liar. Never a liar. Sadly not Never there. a liar. He always tells the truth. Hey, uh, Tony, listen in Albany. Hey, Tony. I think got a hold of you. Uh, I first want to thank you for fighting the uh, Fox new establishment. I know the kids are kind of changing the station. They're I not. See that with- no, Tony, they're really not. I mean, I'm not fighting. I'm, I'm just I'm lucky enough to still have a, a great job. I've held on to it since 97. But what's on your mind? Okay, well, the other the issue with this Trump charges, it's such a ridiculous thing. All the talk show people, almost all, all say the same thing. Well, these charges are rather serious. He could be in real trouble. But they don't take into consideration that everything they've done to him for seven years has been a lie. Why would you want to believe that these assumptions made by a radical guy who hates Trump, why would you want to believe that they're true? I mean, the, the, the fact that they show you pictures of documents spewed. Do you know who was in there to spew those documents? The, the FBI. All right, and- Tony, you're bringing up a great point. It was best, best illustrated by Mike Pence with Chuck Todd. Mike Pence is trying to say, I don't know what happened with this, but there's a double standard. And Chuck Todd didn't know what he was talking about because he has no interest in finding out what other people think, what 72 million people think and been noticing. The Mueller report, the Durham report, the Horowitz report. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. 
Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hope you had a fantastic Father's Day weekend, wherever you are, whatever you were doing. Brett Baer at the bottom of the hour. Brett with another big interview. He's going to be speaking with the president of the United, the former president of the United States in New Jersey shortly, and then we'll air that. We'll see some of that tonight and probably the rest of it tomorrow. We'll find out the details uh, in a moment. And Nick Kozer will be with us, the dancing weatherman, the Fox weather meteorologist. You see him on the Weather Channel. He also goes viral all over, uh, all over social media. So he's going to be with us, too. Really fun guy. You might have seen him on One Nation over the weekend. So before we uh, go any further, let's see if we can get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. It is worth mentioning that we are not at Union Square or the Westfield Mall this morning because we have been advised it is simply too dangerous to be there at this hour. Michael. No, they're saying a lot there, Matt. Uh, there you go. Matt Gutman, who's fresh off a stint in the Ukraine, was told not to go into certain areas of San Francisco. The mayor's real upset, but she shouldn't be because you got a huge crime crisis. Robberies are through the roof. Carjacking is through the roof. Because murders are down, you think you turned the corner? Not a chance. Number two. A poll from Quinnipiac on a, on a possible Biden-Trump match matchup puts Biden at 48 percent, Trump at 44 percent. This is a poll, again, uh, taken largely after the indictment. That's within the margin of error. That is a statistical tie. Yeah, it is. And in other head-to-head, he's actually winning, Jonathan Carl. 2024, still about Trump for now. His double-figure lead not affected by the indictment for now. The game plan for the rest of the field as they fan out and speak out. Plus, Biden hit the campaign trail this weekend. And why so few are excited about the idea of four more years of Joe. Number one. China's sending a message. Hey, we're in charge now. You're finished to the to the West and to the United States. And, and I think it's indicative of what they hope to achieve. Uh, that is General McMaster, H.R. McMaster, weakness. Secretary of State Blinken meets with the counterpart of uh, President Xi. In 45 minutes, he got word that not only would he meet with the foreign secretary, but get a chance with the president. Why do I hate the perception of this? I don't mind talking to China, but not because we begged for a meeting. And the only deliverables are more travel between the countries and more meetings down the line. That, to me, is not worth it. As H.R. McMaster said, if you think about the buzzing of our planes and cutting off our destroyer, the raiding of, a, a, of our military base in Alaska, you see what they happen with the spy balloon. You see what happens with the huge spy base over in Cuba for billions of dollars. Uh, and you see that the fact that they're supporting Russia in the war in Ukraine and they just don't have any care in the world about us. They continue to label us a declining power. To me, you don't talk to people like that. You wish you could rationalize with them. But this is not France or Australia. We're not having a tiff with Germany. This is a irrational power who doesn't think they can exist with us. Here is General H.R. McMaster, cut four. China's sending a message. Hey, we're in charge now. You're finished to the to the West and to the United States. And and I think it's indicative of what they hope to achieve, Margaret, which is to create kind of an exclusionary area of primacy across the Indo-Pacific region. They've laid claim to the ocean in the South China Sea, for example. This really calls for us to have a strong response. I think with uh, Secretary Blinken's visit there, it, it may portray a bit of weakness. I think what they hope with the optics of this meeting, and I, I'm sure Secretary Blinken is quite aware of this, is to create a perception that we're going there to pay homage to the Chinese Communist Party. Because 
they want to use that kind of perception mm-hmm. of China's strength relative to the United States to bludgeon countries in the region and say, hey, time to bandwagon with us. And this is you, our era, what they call the, the new era of international relations. And if you think about it, uh, they're not playing to us. You and I get it. Uh, people listening to the show understand it. But what I want is a situation where we clearly show exactly what they're doing and start shaming some of these companies like the Apples of the world, like the J.P. Morgan Chases of the world, uh, like uh, Tesla, and begin to look elsewhere for the manufacturing. Dare I say, look back here, because right now there's no threat of these country, these governments. You know, my government, we keep changing. It's so volatile. It's so irrational. It's so partisan. Let's just do deals together. Meanwhile, they're stealing our technology. They're raiding different corporations. They are a communist country that is now getting rid of free market principles within their economy. We thought, and it's a fine theory, smartest people in our country thought, if we get in there, we start doing trade, we let them in the WTO, they'll begin to trade with us and see capitalism as the way to compete, not fight. They have gotten rid of capitalism, market principles, hurt their economy, but in the the long run, they think by destroying us, they would be alone in the world. And you know what? That's pretty much right. Any leader that wants to be president of the United States has to have a coherent China plan. And we're all looking for some legislation to push back on China in every way, economically, through technology, and militarily. I need a plan, a coherent plan. Here's Chris Christie, cut seven. The problem has been the entire Biden administration has been filled with mishaps towards China. He has made mistakes in terms of not being tougher against China on the stealing of our intellectual property letting spy balloons fly over our country unharassed. Whatever he's doing today is uh, a day late and a dollar short, um, Bob. He should have been being much more direct with China right from the beginning. And I think people who know me know that there will be no confusion on the part of President Xi when I'm president of the United States about what American policy is and that every day we'll be fighting to make America the winner in this competition against China. So, I mean, here we go. Here's what they had. They they had altogether 10 hours of talk, 7.5 with the foreign secretary and others. And then you got 10 hours. Then you finish it off with the last two hours of President Xi. I'm not against talking. It makes sense. You talk to your enemies. That makes uh, I understand it. But between making good with meeting secretly in Oman with Iran and then just finding a way to get in and talk to China, both from a position of weakness, this will hurt us overseas. Please keep this in mind when it goes to picking a candidate and deciding where your vote goes, because that's not the perception we put $890 billion into our military to foment and to push forward. That is not what we deserve better than that. We are the superpower economically and militarily. It doesn't mean we go sanctions on people we disagree with, but at least we make it clear our enemies will pay the price and, and start isolating them from Russia to China to Iran. And uh, we could, I like to de-risk, I know we can't decouple entirely, but within 10 years we can make some major gains and de-risk immediately. That means getting vital technology out of there, manufacturing, as well as pharmaceuticals and PPA. And lastly, because I don't want to take too much uh, time from Nick, I do want to talk about what's happening in 2024. Many people are astounded that two indictments in, Trump's Power in the Republican Party doesn't seem to have waned much in the polls. Here's Rick Klein of ABC. He's a political director. Cut nine. 
it's remarkable. We've seen it before. And I think it, whether or not you believe that the, the, the political situation today is the same as it will be when the voting starts early next year, and whether, you're not, whether or not you think this is just kind of a rally around the flag, a sugar high for Trump, the reality that, the, that his rival candidates have, have settled around, and I've talked to their campaign managers, I've talked to their strategists, they think at this point there's not going to be a dam that breaks. There's not going to be an event that, that ends Donald Trump. It's going to have to be a candidate who ends Donald Trump. And that, to that point, we're seven months before the voting starts, and this is an issue where they see that there's some vulnerabilities. They hope, hope is the key word here, they hope that they can find a way to, to, to find an argument against Trump that makes sense, because right now, nobody's got it. He is getting stronger. He is not getting weaker, despite what's out there. Yeah, we'll see. I think they're all getting some traction now, because I can think you have quality candidates uh, with pretty good staffs. But Trump's been strong, too. This is his best staff by far. Nick Kozier's next from the Weather Channel. He's got to get back to work. But first, he's going to dance his way here. The guy's got 6.9 million followers on TikTok, over uh, 2 million on Instagram. And he's really cool. Back in a moment. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, we're back. Uh, Nick Kozier's with us now. If you're watching on Fox Nation, you recognize him on, from the Weather Channel, uh, Fox Weather Channel. Yeah, Fox Weather. That's right. Yeah, the big difference in that in the Weather Channel. Uh, <laughs> and Nick was kind enough to join me on One Nation a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Nick has become a huge sensation, not only for his weather knowledge and his feature reporting, uh, but your dancing ability, you notice the dancing weatherman and weatherman and you embrace that. Title, yeah. Right, Nick. Yeah. And, and to be honest with you, I'm not a great dancer. I just think I'm not bad for a middle aged white guy in a suit. Let's, I, I want to make that distinction very clear. I, I think you're really good. You ever see <laughs> on Instagram where they do where they come up and they show you how to do a certain dance? Yeah. Yeah. A little tutorial. I mean, have you ever done that? No, I don't think I should be teaching people how to dance. I'm the last person that should be doing any of that. At the at, matter of fact, I barely know how to do the dances when I start recording, you know what I mean? So it's, I'm just holding it together with smoke and mirrors. But it does feel natural. It is, it is definitely more of a reflect. It's authentically me. I love, I love dancing. I like music for sure. Certainly hip hop and stuff. So yeah, it's, it's pretty authentic. So to, to get these uh, followers, you've gotten the attention of a lot of people. Do you just would dance with Paul Abdul? I did. Yeah. That was unbelievable. How, how did that come about? You know what? I, pff, I, this is, this is going to sound crazy and I'm saying this humbly. Okay. She DM'd me. Well, her social media manager DM'd me and said, hey, I think it'd be cool if you guys met up. She's actually been kind of making the rounds with the big dancers on TikTok and Instagram. And so I had seen her dance with other people that I'd collaborated and have been in orbit around before. And, um, yeah, she finally sent me the DM. And I said, Paula, I will be on the first thing smoking to Los Angeles. So I dropped everything. Booked a flight real quick, went out there, and, and we just danced it up. She's so, so nice. So did you come up with it? You say, do this. Or did she say, because she's a choreographer. Yes, she's a choreographer. And what we did was we kind of made some modifications on a current trend. So there are trend dance trends out there already in the ether. We picked one or two, and um, we, 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 we made our own adjustments to them. And um, she put her out? Is it out right now? Yeah, I put one on my, on my Instagram account. I've got one. I posted... Two, both on my TikTok account. And she gets to do it too. Absolutely. And yeah. so, and this is one of these things where, when it, is it a, a financial gain for you? Is it one of these things where every time probably clicks, this helps Nick's uh, college fund? <laughs> sort of, yeah. I think it's, I'll be honest with you, I think in this day and age, you have to be on social media in one way 
or another, you know. And, I, you know, it's funny. My sister-in-law was at my house when I came back from the Paula Abdul road trip. And she goes, what's the ROI on something like this? And I go, I don't know. I'm figuring it out as I go along. Yes, certainly there are op- opportunities that come by when, you know, you're associated with a big name like Paula Abdul. But I don't know. It's just it's it. I'll, I'll answer that in like two months, I guess. So I also saw a lot of your videos uh, from Times Square. Yeah, you'll hook up with all these guys. <laughs> yeah. do you, do you, is that when you approach them? Uh, sometimes, or they'll DM me, and we'll just kind of feel each other out and see if if one person is down to do one thing, and if so, and if it makes sense for both of us, we will get together. Um, the the people that I normally collab with out in Times Square, I met the first time. I had ever been in Times Square, and they came up to me, and they go, hey, aren't you that guy? They recognized me from Charlotte, North Carolina, because I'd been doing this since uh, 2019 out there. And they go, hey, aren't you that guy? And I was like, yeah, man. At first, I was a little bit intimidated. I didn't know. I wasn't sure if I was dancing on someone's, like, rival territory because, <laughs> you know, right. New York has a little bit of a reputation. I hear. So, um, yeah. So I, was, I wasn't sure if I was about to, you know, be kicked out, you know, if it was going to be a hostile takeover or not. But they were really cool, and they were like, we should, you know, we should dance and stuff. And so that's kind of how our relationship started, and I've been meeting people through them, uh, through, the, through the one guy named Dre ever since that day in 2000, I think, 21 here. And if people want to check you out, where do they go? Uh, just search the Dancing Weatherman, and you can you can pick a social media. But Nick Koser on Instagram and TikTok how and did, YouTube. How did Fox Weather find you? They, I think they found me through. Well, Shari Berg uh, called me up, emailed me. Her assistant emailed me, and uh, she's I, in charge of all the Fox affiliates. Bingo! She is way up there in the stratosphere when it comes to the Fox hierarchy. But yeah, I believe I believe her. Maybe her assistant. At the time, put me on Shari's radar, and you know we we started having a conversation since then. And obviously, were you doing weather in Charlotte? Absolutely, I've been doing weather for eighteen years, almost wow. two decades, and was doing weather in Charlotte, just kind of chugging along. Um, I really didn't have any plans to leave Charlotte. Charlotte's great; quality of life there is unbelievable. Lived right by Lake Norman; we'd boat all the time, and I didn't really have any plans to leave. And then you know, when Shari Berg from the Fox network calls up and says, Hey, we might have a thing for you here. You kind of, you kind of listen and you kind of perk up. And so that's how it all started. And yeah, we figured it all out. And I, I've, I'm coming up on two years here at Fox weather on July 26th. It'll be two years. And Fox is poor. You're flying around doing the dancing stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. They, they've been cool with it. You know, ever since I started, we, you know, obviously there was a negotiation and, and, I believe that, uh, yeah, they've been supportive. Yeah. I mean, it makes you stand out in a very tough uh, weather world. They, right. They, the weather is a story, but then they, you want people to say, hey, I want to hear what that guy has to say. Yeah. Um, just a quick weather question. Yeah, yeah. We watched the rains pour in California. And I was just sitting there watching the always saying, are we going to soon say, as bad as this is, right. are we soon going to say the drought is over? Right. And we don't really hear that. I know. Right? Well, they didn't find a good way to capture the water. Yeah. But now we're seeing the green come back. I know some people in California say they don't even recognize it. It's so beautiful. Remember, they had to put turf down. If the Kardashians were watering their lawn, it was a big scandal. Yeah. And now, instead of looking at the positive, <laughs> they're writing about... If you're in the rapids going down uh, whitewater rafting, it's going to be too dangerous. Right. And at, th- at one point in the winter, they were talking about how there was too much snow. The ski resorts couldn't open because infrastructure 
couldn't take it. Roofs were on the brink of collapse. And yeah, the reservoirs were 100 percent full. Why 100%. can't we ever do you guys report this good story, this good news? I believe we do. I believe we do a pretty good job of, of telling you what's happening and what's not happening. And so, yeah, if you watch us on Fox Weather, stream us, whatever, we're everywhere. Um, I think we do a really good job of, of reporting the good news and the bad news right. as it is. And what about you? You've been through a lot of uh, personal challenges, too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so for a while, you wrote in on Instagram that you were drinking too much for a while. I think so, yeah. My family has a history of alcoholism, and at one point in time— You wanted to break that tradition. Yes. I wanted to break the generational curse, I believe is what they would call it out there. And so, yeah, I just, I just kind of recognized that I wasn't— I don't really know if I was an alcoholic. I just know that drinking was not good for me. And whenever I would do it, I wouldn't feel great about it. And people around me just didn't didn't love me in that state either. And so I got to tell you, family, family, wife, yeah, close friends. You know, at one point they were all kind of like, all right, man, you should probably back off. And that's when I knew that I I had a problem. So I didn't want to be be that person, didn't want to go down that road that my my family members had gone down before me. And so one day I just woke up and I go, you know what? This is it. I, I called a therapist and I got working on it right away. And that was about six years ago. Haven't had a drop since. And I got to tell you, man, that has been the catalyst for all my success. Really? All of it. I mean, the ability to be consistent when you're 100% sober is so much easier than, than, when, than when I was drinking. Because when I would drink, I'd be lethargic a day or two and I wouldn't have any motivation to do anything. And so now that I'm sober 100% of the time, the motivation keeps building. And you're unbelievably fit, right? Do you work out crazy? I try. Thank you for saying that, by the way. God bless you, too. Um, yeah, I work out. I try to work out four days a week. Well, it's just great. So, but you found out that maybe were you ADD? A lot of times people are. You know what I am? I had social anxiety, and I was self-medicating with alcohol. And, I, and it would find, like, the buzz that I would always feel inside of me would finally quell when I had that first or, or second sip, and I would just never want that to go away. So I would keep drinking a little too much to keep that going. When I got therapy, my therapist immediately sat me down, and after like two sessions, mm. she goes, Nick, you've got classic social anxiety. Mm. You should take this pill, and ever since then, I've been fine. All right. We'll find out what that pill is at some other time because we're out of time. <laughs> uh, Nick Kozier, thanks so much. The Dancing Weatherman, find him everywhere at Nick Kozier. And at official Nick Kozier, right? Thank you, yes. Thanks, and by the way, thank you for having me. You're the best. You got it. I think I'm the best, too. <laughs> Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. A poll from Quinnipiac on a, on a possible Biden-Trump match matchup puts Biden at 48%. Trump at 44%. This is a poll, again, uh, taken largely after the indictment. Uh, I mean, that's got to make you a little nervous. That's within the margin of error. That is a statistical tie. So what does that say about Biden if what, what he's barely it? beating no, or in some polls it, actually it, 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 it says 70% of the country don't want him to run again. They think he's too old. Why is Jonathan Coles shocked by that? Did you watch him? God save the queen after his last speech? It's uh, incredible what's going on and making up some quotes that John Wayne didn't say. Uh, Brett Baer is in New Jersey. He's chief political anchor for Fox News and anchor special report. Not to be closer to the studio, the Fox New York studio, but to be closer to Bedminster, where Donald Trump is calling his summer home and where Brett Baer will be doing a one-on-one interview with the former president and the most famous person in the world. Brett, welcome back. Big day. 
Yeah, Brian, big day. Uh, we're getting ready to head over to Bedminster, and um, we'll sit down with the former president um, for about an hour on tape, and we'll split it up into two days on special report, the first one being uh, tonight. And, you know, no restrictions. We're going to cover all the topics that everybody wants to hear, and uh, it should be interesting back and forth. You know, the, the one thing you have to say, he sits down with people, he talks whether it's Leslie Stahl, Chris Wallace sat down for an hour, you know, he'll sit down. He will did, just did a town hall on CNN. The one thing about this president, he will talk to people and engage with them. We don't get that now. Yeah, you know, it's really important. And, you know, there's all kinds of criticism about President, uh, former President Trump uh, on a host of issues. But you're right. He addresses it. He talks to people that maybe aren't, you know, comfortable interviews. Um I will say that I've asked Governor DeSantis on my show many, many times for for months, and I haven't had him on special report. Obviously, we put in a request for President Biden every week, and we had the Super Bowl interview lined up, uh, but he he didn't do that. So no matter what you think of either ideology or style, uh, this, this former president, the 45th president, does take questions head on. So uh, I guess it's it's challenging because there's so many different ways to go. And you see what everyone – every time they sit down with them, they're going to talk about January 6th. Uh, they're going to talk about the many indictments that go down. They never talk about his track record, what you accomplished, what you didn't accomplish. What are you going to get done? Here's some – what's some valid criticism about you? And I know you're taking some, some, uh, some questions from viewers. Have you thought yeah. about your approach that maybe you can give everyone a little bit of a preview to your approach? even though Donald Trump could be listening? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, listen, I think that what people want to know is, first of all, this is the first sit-down since um, the indictment and his arrest in in Miami. Um, So you got to address the specifics of that, and and they know, I think, that that's coming. But we're also going to go around the world, foreign policy. You've got the Secretary of State over in China today. You've got all kinds of policy issues that are going to play out in this GOP primary that substantively you want to hear what a possible second term for Donald Trump is. Now, remember, this is the leading GOP uh, candidate by far. And so what he says on different policy issues makes makes news depending on what he's thinking about. Um, going forward. So I think, you know, we're, we're going to take it methodically. I am going to use a few uh, social media questions. And, uh, and you know, an hour is a long time, but the former president usually fills a lot of, a lot of airtime. Uh, so trying to get as many questions in as I can. Uh, I know you did the impossible. You ticked off Mitt Romney. That doesn't happen a lot, Brett. Yeah. I, I still <laughs> and, remember that. And President Obama and yes. yeah, John McCain, a couple others, yeah. Uh, here's right now the Quinnipiac poll. Trump 53, DeSantis 23, Haley, Pence 4, Scott 4, Vivek 3. It was also brought up to me that when Trump was came down the escalator all those years ago, he had when he came down and landed and opened up and gave his speech, you know, they say that he had a few people he hired to be out there and he had 1% of the vote and everyone was just dismissing. Remember Ann Coulter on HBO said my pick is Donald Trump and everybody left. So you don't know what's going to happen, even though he's got to feel good about where he is. Yeah. And listen, there's a real 
sense. And, and one of the things you have to get is his sense about where this stands. I mean, his opponents at some point in this process are really going to hit hard about we liked his policies, but I can't handle the chaos or the scandals or the controversy or the vitriol or whatever you want to call it. Um, so they're going to try to tap into that. And how does he see that is kind of an important look at the politics of the moment. He's clearly leading now, but we've seen those early states do have an effect. And if they start to close, you know, one thing leads to another and you have a real horse race uh, by the time you get to Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, we've got a long way to go before then. And uh, next up is a, a debate in August in Milwaukee that we're hosting. And uh, we'll see if the former president's going to appear. Right. Uh, early indications are no. He's if I'm up by this much, why would I debate? Yeah, I'm sure you've heard that. Yeah. And listen, I've talked about this before. I'm, that's fine. And we'll see what he says today. But um, it's sort of like a, a bug zapper in the backyard that, you know, the bugs try to fly by, but it's really tough. You know, I think that by the time that spotlight is shown uh, out of Milwaukee, that um, that this former president may may want to have that stage. He's proved himself pretty effective on the debate stage, and we'll see what uh, where his mindset is. So I want you to hear what Peter Baker said yesterday in New York Times, Chief White House Correspondent. He says what the rest of the field is saying. We know that there's critics like Governor Christie is a relentless critic. That's how he's going to run. Uh, Asa Hutchinson says he should be disqualified, should just drop out. For the rest, they're pretty much in and out of kind of uh, straddling. Here's what Peter Baker says the strategy is. Cut 12. He is the all-consuming part of the Republican primary right now. And to Hallie's point, I get the point. We're not having votes yet. So maybe if you're going to eventually take that knives out, you want to wait till you get closer to when the votes begin rather than make yourself a target for him for the next three or four or five months. I think the real strategy, though, is they're just waiting for Trump to beat himself. Because right now, none of them can beat him. So they're waiting for him to sell. That worked really well. So that is what they're waiting for. They know that about it. They think that if two more indictments come, they think at some point it will weigh him down. I think so. But, I mean, I think the 2016 primary field was waiting for that, too, which is why Marco Rubio spent $30 million on Jeb Bush's head and Jeb Bush spent, whatever, $40 million on Marco Rubio's head uh, running negative ads. and, And everybody thought, Donald Trump was going to do himself in, and he never did. So uh, I, I don't know if that, that strategy really works. I also do know that, uh, that some of these candidates are concerned about um, you know, unleashing the truth social Twitter, social media uh, barrage uh, going on a full-on uh, attack mode. You know, it's interesting to watch somebody like Senator Tim Scott, who can be critical in a nice way. I know. And um, and you wonder whether that plays. I don't know. I, I hope so. It would be good for the country to see someone positive win with that message or, or start closing the gap. Uh, we know how smart he is, too. So I saw this interview in the middle of the day on Saturday or listened to it, and I thought it was important. Jack Smith, as you know, has a history. Goes to The Hague. Everyone's focused on that, and he's a relentless prosecutor. But he has a lot of losses and a lot of disappointments, one of which was to Bob McDonald. He convicted him. And the Supreme Court overturned. Bob McDonald spoke to Michael Smirkanish, former speechwriter, I think, for Bush, H.W. And this is what he said, how what what Jack Smith did. Cut 35. But in the courtroom and in the judgments, uh, he's had these failures. You know, in my case, twenty eight million dollars of legal fees and three and a half years of uh, great difficulty for my state, my family, my staff. 
Uh, I just think uh, he's willing to stretch the law. And here's the problem, Michael. You know, as a lawyer, the ethical rules are you're supposed to, as a government attorney, a federal prosecutor, you're supposed to seek truth and justice, not merely to convict. It's a very different ethical duty. And I think maybe that's been uh, the downfall in some of these cases. He'd rather win. And here, here he went on to say this, cut 34. My case, you know, uh, Michael, uh, it's, it's long in the past uh, now, uh, but uh, we wrote a 38-page brief we gave the government in advance telling them why their theory of the case were wrong. We had amicus briefs filed by people like the former uh, White House counsel for five U.S. presidents from Reagan to Obama, uh, 83 former attorneys general saying why this was wrong, and yet, you know, they persisted. And so, you know, what I get out of that is uh, I think he's... Uh, been overzealous in some of these so-profile cases. He's willing to stretch the law. John Roberts called it a boundless interpretation that would catch up uh, politicians in their ordinary acts that they do for uh, people. And I, and I think it's just uh, says maybe a lack of judgment. And uh, that's the concern that I get out of my case and the others. So it's just not Donald Trump who's saying Jack Smith and negative things. Bob McDonald in a very more measured way years later sees a lot of problems with Jack Smith's approach. Yeah, and that's an important interview because it's somebody in the heat of the matter and uh, somebody's life who was dramatically affected um, by that. Uh, Three and a half years, that's a lot of money, $28 million. Um, And, yeah, that's all fair to put in there. I think that people on the other side say this is a different case substantively as far as highly classified material that potentially is dangerous if it's released, an attack plan on Iran, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That doesn't, you know, this is the people that, that side with the special counsel and the indictment saying it doesn't fit in the Presidential Records Act of personal records. But, you know, there's the Mark Levins and others who say, no, it doesn't fall that way, and it should be, it should be all in, in that umbrella. And uh, that's the legal battle that lies ahead. I think, um, you know, to get the president's take on some of the specifics, I, I think is is going to be interesting. Yeah, I can't wait to see it over the next two days, a special report. And finally, Brad, how do you do with this? You used to give him tough interviews and let the chips roll with four there in May. But when this is all said and done, you'd like to play golf with him. How do you do both? I mean, <laughs> are you going to hold back a, a little? <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, listen, if, if you get an invite, um, at the time it was the president of the United States, uh, I think it's something you got to think about in an off-the-record way to, to pick somebody's brain. Uh, it's been a while since I've played golf with him. But, um, but yeah, listen, I, I, I think that my approach is always, no matter the, the subject, tough but fair, to where you get to the end of the interview, and maybe you're a little bit irked by a couple of questions, but you're overall think that you got a fair shake. And Democrat, Republican, whatever, I think that if I can get to that point – then that's a good thing, not only for me and the person I'm interviewing, but also for the viewer to get out some answers that maybe aren't talking points. I hear you. It's going to be great. Brett, thanks so much. Best of luck. Okay, we'll see you. All right. He's in New Jersey getting set for his interview at Bedminster with the former president of the United States, who could be the 47th president of the United States. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Back to find out if there's more to know with your calls. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade.
breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. All right, we are back. Got a few minutes, and it makes me wonder if there is, is, is indeed a need to know more. More to know. Invest in premium American whiskey as it ages. The older it gets, the better it gets, and the more valuable it gets. Go to caskdeeds.com. That's caskdeeds.com to learn more. Paid for by Spirits Capital Corporation. Gotta love them. Meanwhile, President Biden continues to, let's say, perplex many listeners who go to see him live or watch him on tape. For example, when he said this series of statements to end a speech on guns. Now, as you, some of you know, I'd usually come down and say hi to all of you. They tell me there's a storm coming in. Is that right? Is, still, is that still the deal? That's the truth. Now, don't make a lie. As that, that scene in the John Wayne movie, don't make me a dog-faced lion pony soldier. Yeah. All right? God save the queen, man. Okay, nobody knows what any of that meant. We heard that dog-faced pony soldier before, but he screwed that up. He said the John Wayne movie, he never did not in a John Wayne movie. Uh, he said God save the queen. Nobody knows what that was about. Olivia Dalton, the White House principal deputy press secretary, didn't know what her boss meant. When journalists asked, she replied, was commenting to someone in the crowd. Uh, doesn't seem like that, but Biden has been using unique phrases for years, flashback to 2017. He also said God save the queen when he was vice president in January after he certified John uh, Donald Trump's 2016 election victory. Uh, Axios asked several current former employees what the phrase meant. Several gave different answers, and some said they aren't sure. Isn't that just a little bit scary that, number one, no one closed the circle on that to get him an answer? It is, but also that, you know, um, the White House uh, Olivia Dalton, the principal deputy press secretary, he was commenting to someone in the crowd. Clearly he wasn't. Why would he just lie? Just I say, know. I need to get back to you. I'm not sure. That's I know. the most disturbing thing to me. Well, remember the remember the, the Trump people did the same thing with Gofefi? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's true, that too. That was pretty crazy. Uh, Obviously, it was a typo. He goes, no, it's something we say to each other, I think. Like, why can't people just say... Let me get back to you. Let me find out the correct answer. That's also exactly the issue with trust in media. True. Uh, also, on pony uh, on the dog face pony soldier, nobody knows what that meant. Uh, so they're trying to figure that out because he said this before. It makes no sense. He claimed the past that the line is from a John Wayne movie, but film aficionados haven't found it yet. There was a 1952 western called Pony Soldier. But Wayne was not in it. There are legitimate questions about Biden's age and stamina as he runs for a second term and things like this keep happening. Unbelievable. And then meanwhile, we'll talk about it in a moment. Next, Daniel Krauthammer threw out the first pitch at the Nationals game yesterday, Sunday. The Nationals have a plaque in his honor. Charles Krauthammer is a legend, smartest guy you'll ever meet. Uh, Passed away through complications, uh, through surgery. But Charles Krauthammer went to every Nationals game right after the special report. He'd hop in a van made for him. He was paralyzed. He'd be able to drive with his hands in a special van, and he would go to his seat in the park. Let's listen. Charles Krauthammer was a best-selling author, award-winning journalist, and devoted fan of the Washington Nationals. Today, we honor his love for baseball and our ball club with a special dedication in Section 128 where he held season tickets from the ballpark's opening day 
until the end of his life. Please join us as we welcome Charles' son, Daniel, back to Nationals Park to throw out a special ceremonial pitch. Screech will catch Daniel's first pitch when you're ready. Great pitch. Thank you for joining us today. So there you go. Perfect strike. Daniel Crowdhammer. I wouldn't be surprised to see him. Don't you think he's going to be heading toward that columnist? He's such a deep thinker. Have you met him? Yeah, we've had him in a few times when he wrote um, the book on his dad, right? Or he finished the book yeah. with his dad. So he was he was lovely. Yeah, we'll see if he comes back. Next, what is out and what is in? According to a new study, all these heartthrob fictional novels, these steamy novels, no longer want the Fabio types, the big strong men. They want men that are in touch with themselves, so to speak. Uh, romance novel publishers speak. They say that means male lovers who are more puppy-like, soft and cuddly, and less toxic, like people like Fabio. So the New York Post contacted Fabio himself, and he said this, In life there are trends, and there's is nothing more than a trend. It's ridiculous, like all the rest of the woke movement. I talk to many people. I talk to many women, and women say, We can't find real men anymore. We want a real man, not a metrosexual. Where are women at this point, right? And I'm not asking Eric. I'm asking Allison. No, I think women do want real men, except they're not there. It also could be, are they trying to say, like, oh, it's okay for men if they want to be a woman. You know what I mean? If they're right. trying to, like, blur the lines still. But can, can someone pick what they want in a romance novel? Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.